Hi friends, thanks for tuning in. Uh, we are in ordinary time in the church calendar and the texts for this past Sunday, October 22nd, were Exodus 33 verses 12 through 33, Psalm 99, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 10, and Matthew 22 verses 15 through 22. And as always, these are linked in the show notes. So if you'd like to take some time to read these texts on your own. You can find them there. Anyway, here's the sermon. Grace and peace. Now, uh, sometimes the lectionary, in an attempt to maybe pass over some difficulty, I suppose, picks up at certain strange places in the narrative. And if we simply looked at today's Exodus reading, which starts in verse 12 in the lectionary, we have this kind of nice text where God reassuringly tells Moses, I will go with you to the promised land. And and Moses then asks to see God's glory. And God says, well, that might be a a bit much for you, but I'll let all my goodness pass in front of you. And so this is is wonderful. But the problem is that before we arrive at God's, I will go with you, we get this. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. Lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Before God ever says, I will go with you, God says, I will not go with you. (laughs) Why? Because the people had turned away from God and to idols. And so God responds to them by saying, it's time for you to now leave here, leave Horeb and go to the promised land. But my presence will not accompany you there, just so you know. And this, friends, is more devastating than we can possibly imagine. Peter Enns writes this, The significance of this turn of events cannot be stressed too highly. The whole purpose of the Exodus was for God and his people to be together. God's presence with them will firmly be established in the proposed tabernacle. By saying, go ahead, but you're going without me, the events of the previous 31 chapters are being undone. This is not merely a setback. It means the end of the road. And so the people have reached this moment of utter crisis. God's I will not go with you is the worst thing that could happen to them. Now we're in a bit of a theological dilemma here because we know that there is no place that God is not. As the psalmist said, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn or settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. There is no place where God is not. As I've said uh, several times before, there is no place that is God forsaken, only church forsaken. And yet, God says, I will not be with you. What are we to make of this? 
Some scholars like Terence Fredham would say that we need to distinguish among types of divine presence. And he writes us that the two ends of a continuum are God's general presence in the world and God's intensified presence in theophany. And I tend to agree with him. There is no place that God is not, and yet there are moments when we can notice that the intensified presence of God, God's special way of nearness seems absent. I'm not speaking here simply of dry seasons in our lives. We all go through dry spiritual seasons. But there are times when you can walk into a church, for example, and it feels like something is off. The peace or the joy that once existed there in that place seems to have lifted and instead there is a heaviness. And the heaviness is not the weight of glory. The heaviness is the felt reality of the missing glory in that place. Now this doesn't mean that God has abandoned God's people, but I do believe that there is a way in which we can offend God's presence. Or perhaps it would be better to say that God's special presence, precisely because our turn away from God, can become offensive to us. And so this intensified or this heightened awareness seems to be missing. And it becomes a felt absence. Now, it's important to quickly say here that I believe that even here, even when we see this, God saying, I will not go with you, there is a grace at play. This felt absence may, in fact, be the very thing that makes us, at times, want to abandon the course that we are on and, like Moses, come to a place with God and saying, if your presence doesn't go with us, we do not want to make another step. Notice, too, that God says that God will not go with the people in order to protect them. God says uh, he does not want them to be consumed. And I think there's a way of looking at this and saying, wow, God sure does seem to have a quick temper. But what if the point is less about God's anger and more about how we experience the presence of God based on the posture of our own hearts? In Romans 12, the Apostle Paul quotes from the book of Proverbs and says this, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now what's interesting here is not the action, the giving of the food or the giving of the drink, but how the action is received. So think about this, if you and I are a good relationship and I say, hey, I will buy your food or I will buy your drink, in other words, let me get lunch, and we're a good relationship, you would receive it with gratitude as I would from you and it would all be from love. However, if you hate me or you distrusted me and I, I insisted on buying you lunch, you might receive it totally differently than if we were in good relationship. You might believe that I was spitefully trying to prove something to you or, or trying to one-up you or maybe I was trying to belittle you. No, 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 I'll, I'll get this. I'm trying to prove something to you. 
Notice, though, that the action in both cases is, is the same. In both cases, I bought the lunch, but based on your disposition toward me, you could either receive it as love or it could heap burning coals on your angry head. The fire of God is the fire of love. I know this because in 1 John we are told that God is love, which means love is the very essence of God. It's not merely just an attribute of God. Love is the essence of who God is. And so Brian Zahn puts us so well. He says, from the heart of God there flows an eternal river of fire, the fire of unquenchable love. The question is not whether God loves us, but how we respond to God's love. To those who respond to God's love with love, we love because he first loved us. The river of fire is a source of warmth and light. But to those who refuse to love, this same river of fire produces torment. Notice that when Moses asks to see God's glory, God says, look, if you see my full glory, like, it's just going to short circuit you. You'd die. But I'll tell you what, let all of my goodness pass in front of you. And if we're reading closely, we'll notice both when God's intensified presence lifts from the people, when God says, I will not go with you, and when God's special presence visits Moses in this astounding way that I think we all read that text and my goodness, you know, show me your glory. What, what, what happened here? In both instances, the message is the same. God is trying to protect the people, whether Moses or, or the people of Israel, because God does not want them to die. In fact, when God says, I will not go, we read two times that God says that God is worried about the people. Could it be that the people had turned themselves so far from God that they had rejected God's embrace that the love of God that was meant to provide light and warmth to them would be received as torment to the point of consuming them? When what God actually wanted for the people is what Moses encountered in the wilderness with the bush that was on fire but not consumed. Well, the Lord tells Moses to say to the people, now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. <laughs> and the people's response is, is amazing. It says, therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. They not only took off the ornaments, they left them behind completely at the mountain of God. In the book of Ezekiel, we see God giving uh, ornaments, same word. And they were meant there to be a sign of God's marriage to them. But here, the ornaments that they were wearing were from Egypt. And I'm interested in this, because had they just taken off Hadn't they just taken off their, uh, some of their ornaments, some of their gold, in order to make the golden calf, just like two chapters back? But it appears that they kept some. Why? Well, I, I don't know for sure, but I imagine 
that beyond wanting to have little gods like, like the golden calf that they could control, uh, could move around the way they wanted, they also wanted to be ensure that they could be in control of their own future. They wanted their ornaments or their wealth so that they could buy themselves out of trouble in case they needed. In case God's presence wasn't enough for them, they needed to make sure that they had enough backup money to get to the place they wanted to go. But what they didn't understand is that the golden bracelets and necklaces that they thought were their security for their future were actually shackles that were keeping them bound to Egypt and were keeping them from moving forward towards promise. And the thing is, we cannot secure our future either as individuals or as a church by buying our way there. I'm saying this at a time when our offerings are low, by the way. And there are moments, and we will have them, to call to give and to even give sacrificially. But the, the truth is, friends, even if we were to double or triple our budget, but the Lord does not go with us, If we aren't moving forward by following where God wants us to go, it doesn't mean a thing. We can have all the money in the world, but if we do not have the presence of God with us, it doesn't matter. In today's gospel reading, the religious leaders are once again trying to trap Jesus. And so they ask him about paying taxes. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Is it not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus responds by asking to see the coin that they possess. And once they show him the coin, Jesus asks two questions. Whose likeness and inscription is this? And so Jesus, by asking them to show the coin, he's asking them about money and he's asking them about inscription. And they said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and they went away. Their tax question to Jesus was loaded because if Jesus said, yeah, 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 pay the tax, uh, he will appear to be siding with the Herodians who are mentioned in the text. The Herodians are people who basically said, you know what, let's just get along with Rome here and stop causing problems for ourselves. And so Jesus' status as, as a prophet would be on the line. He would be seen as colluding with these, you know, other Jews who were working alongside, as many saw it, with the empire. On the other hand, if Jesus said, yeah, 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 no, don't pay him the tax, which is what a revolutionary should say according to the people's thinking, that's why they're trying to trap him, well, that's the kind of thing that Rome would hear about and a person would get crucified for that exact type thing. And so Jesus does an interesting thing. He asks to see the coin that they pulled out. And it's here that they've fallen into Jesus' trap. Now, it seems like the Romans didn't just want taxes paid to them. They wanted taxes paid in their own mint. They wanted taxes paid with their own coins, which Jesus' questioners apparently had in their possession. 
And so while they ask him about tax, Jesus asks them about the coin. Why? First, because the coin had Caesar's image on it. A Jew would never put an image on one of their coins. And this may be the exact reason that Jesus doesn't have the coin with him, but asks them, hey, do you, got a coin? Do you have one of the coins on you? Show me. So in asking about image, what Jesus is doing is reminding them of the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And what they had in their pockets was a graven image. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He then asks what the inscription says. And the inscription says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. This, friends, is blasphemy. So I tend to agree with Stanley Howard when he says, look, when Jesus is saying give to Caesars what is Caesars, this is not some point about how we should interact with the government. His point isn't about paying taxes at all. What he's saying is a faithful Jew would not be carrying that image and that blasphemy around to begin with. Give it back where it belongs. The children of Israel were to leave behind the Egyptian ornaments in the time of Moses and to leave behind the idolatrous and blasphemous coins in Jesus' time. In our New Testament reading today, Paul says this amazing thing to the Thessalonians. He writes, for we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. Paul says, you know, we didn't simply come to you with words about the gospel. You experienced the power and the presence and the heightened presence of God amongst yourselves. You experienced the nearness of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, you know, we, we don't even have to testify about you in some places. In fact, we don't have to testify about you anywhere in the world. You have become models to other believers. Why were they the models? Now, when we have thought of models in churches in the past 20 years, we think about churches that have good strategies or churches that are innovative or growing quickly. This is not the model that Paul lifts up. Here is why Paul says that they were a model church. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Do you see how our texts are all related today? When the Thessalonians experienced the power of the Holy Spirit, they renounced their idols. When Jesus is saying, give back to Caesar, that which belongs to Caesar, and give to God the thing that belongs to God, it is an invitation, maybe a command, to the same type of life, to give idols back and to live in the kingdom of God by having intimacy with God in worship. And Moses knew this too. 
After the people left their ties to Egypt, which had become idols, God says this to Moses, my presence will go with you. My presence will go with you and I'll give you rest. The you here, however, is singular. God is telling Moses that he will go with him. And Moses was not yet satisfied. Moses says, if your presence will not go with me, and now he switches, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Sisters and brothers, this is what I want for this church. I am not satisfied with simply sensing God's presence for myself or maybe some of you sensing God's presence on your own, but I cry out to the living God that we as a people will experience the nearness of God and that we will learn to leave behind the things that need to be left behind. False securities, false ways of thinking, thinking that we somehow know how to do this on our own. And instead we learn to walk by faith and not by sight. Because the only thing that will get us to the place that we need to be and that God wants us to be will be to call upon the Lord and say we are not making a single step unless we know that you are leading us. We don't want to move on our own. And you can call me a, you know, a wild Pentecostal, but I come in through, through the week and I walk through this place and pray for chairs. And that might be weird, but I picture you as I do so and your, your children, some people missing here. And we begin to pray that the, pre- the special presence of God would begin to visit us as a people. That as you walk in here with heaviness in your heart, that you will encounter the presence of God. Just a few moments in God's presence can change everything for you and for us. And so, Lord, we don't want to move on our own. So let your presence come here to these people in this time. You are welcome in this place. Show us your glory. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.